You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech. Here on Law Technology Now. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be back on Law Technology Now. And I have a wonderful first guest who, whose company has been right smack dab in the middle of the news lately. I'm talking with the wonderful Josh Becker, who is the head honcho of Lex Machina, which has just been sold to LexisNexis. And we're going to explore today a little bit about how that happened and the history of Lex Machina. And the first question I have for you, Josh, is your first name on the company was kind of a mouthful, the IP Litigation Clearinghouse. Uh, how and when did you switch over to Lex Machina and whose idea was it? Well, it's interesting, Monica. First of all, thank you for having me on here. And it's good to be on with you, especially with all you've done for law and technology. This started as a public interest project at Stanford Law. So it was uh, a conversation. Mark Lemley, who many people know as one of the top, if not the top IP academic in the country, uh, was having with a number of companies. And they were trying to figure out, um, particularly on patent lawsuits, they're all of a sudden getting hit by all these lawsuits. Who are these people suing them? What was their pattern of behavior? Who's this judge in the Eastern District of Texas? What's going on? How long is this likely to take? Um, all these kinds of questions. And so the IP litigation clearinghouse, as you rightly referred to, started out uh, as a public interest project with that name at Stanford. And, um, and they realized it was a very difficult um, problem, even though they actually raised $3 million from the companies and law firms who just said, hey, Stanford, can you help us get some insight into this? But they still realized it was a very difficult problem to solve. And as they went around and went, got the computer science department involved, some of the top guys in the world, Andrew Ng and Chris Manning. And over time, they said, hey, there's a lot of value here. Um, ultimately, folks said, hey, let's spin this off into a company. Uh, we'll keep the data free to academics and judges. So we'll keep the mission of the public interest project. But we think we can ultimately put in a lot more resources if we can get folks to pay for it. And so that's what the... Uh, that's what led to the spin-out in 2010. And, of course, with full disclosure, I, I need to tell our audience that um, I'm no longer the editor-in-chief of Law Technology News. I retired uh, just about a year ago. It'll be a year ago right after Legal Tech, which is next week. And uh, I'm now a fellow at Stanford uh, in the Codex Unit, which is also known as the Center, the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. Was it was it Codex yet when you were there, or was that does that predate the beginning of Codex? It predates Codex. Yeah, it was sort of this originally started back in 2006, 2007, um, but as Codex was being formed, uh, there was a lot of support from Stanford. 
So tell us a little bit more about the history and what were your first challenges and and how did you come up with getting the money and learning how to do that and getting involved with venture capitalists to build your new company? We had to support early on um, from actually the law school, uh, put in some capital to get it going uh, after the spin out. And then a new group, which I'm part of called the Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs, a number of uh, individuals stepped up, including Jerry Yang, founder of Yahoo!, Joe Lonsdale, founder of Palantir, who really knows big data. And so that provided some initial seed money for uh, the company. Um, But as you know, one of the challenges in our industry is that it can be slow to sell to law firms and get people to adopt and to corporate law departments as well. And so had to work um, very, very hard in getting those initial customers, getting them referenceable, proving out the use cases, um, while at the same time, um, talking to venture capitalists and open being able to say to them, hey, listen, look at the traction we have. Talk to these uh, corporate law departments. Talk to these law firms. See how important this is. And then ultimately, really getting venture money is all about being able to tell a big story. So we had to really think hard about telling the market story. And that's a perfect segue to have you tell our listeners Let's assume that many of them may not know a lot about it and aren't in the valley. Give us an example of how how the system would help a lawyer who is uh, facing litigation uh, in IP. Uh, can you walk us through so that we can give them a, a idea about how they would use it, where they would use it, and the types of things that would be available? Sure. Yeah, on the law firm side, and the lawyer said we we talk about first get the case, win the case. Right. So first, it's helpful in actually winning business because in litigation, as you know, uh, most things there's a pitch. You're competing with other firms. Laws become more competitive, and therefore, if you can show, um, hey, I know this judge. It's not just anecdata. Hey, here's one experience I had with them five years ago, or it's not just emailing around my firm and saying, hey, by the way, who else has had experience with, with this uh, judge in the last five, ten years? It's being able to, at a click of a button, look at that judge's behavior in all similar cases. Um, how long did, did it take to get to certain motions? Did it, get to, did it take to get to claim construction? Did it take to get to trial? What percent of, of certain motions were successful? Now you can go in armed with the information and show that you understand that judge, you understand that district. And also, we often have better data on the law firms than they do about themselves. So they can now say, uh, not only definitively, hey, we have X number of cases in front of this judge across our firm. But they can say, hey, by the way, that's 30% more cases than these firms, other firms that I see you typically use, right? So all of a sudden, you're using actual data to compare, contrast, demonstrate expertise, in addition to, um, you know, the expertise, you know, that you already have and showcasing the expertise you already have. And then we talk about win the case because that's really where it becomes a case strategy tool. It's saying, hey, should we be changing venue what arguments have worked in the past? Uh, how likely is that to succeed? You know, researching the opposing uh, law firm and their pattern of behavior, <clears throat> see how busy they are, and research the judge, et cetera, et cetera. So we talk about get the case and win the case. On the corporate side, the use cases are somewhat similar. Um, just as law firms use data to pitch companies, companies can use data to evaluate law firms. So for the first time, they can get a comprehensive look and say, okay, what is this firm's experience? And you know, who else have they worked for? They, I can do my own reference. I can do my own uh, complex check. 
um, and look at who else they've been working for, and, you know, what their track record has been in these kinds of cases. And then I can work with them and set strategy. So it becomes an early case assessment tool for them as well. So as soon as a lawsuit comes in, how serious is this? Is this something that's likely to track out for a long time? Is this something that's likely to cost a lot of money? Is this something where I need my, my A-level, uh, you know, $800, $900 an hour attorney? Or is this something that maybe someone, uh, you know, locally who's not as expensive can handle and handle just fine and do a great job? So there's an early case assessment element, uh, accessing and managing outside counsel using data. And ultimately, in the IP space, too, it's about setting IP business strategy. So I can look and see what's happened with these, pat- these kinds of patents in the past. What were the damages in the cases involving these patents or similar patents because there's a patent similarity engine? All, all those kinds of aspects, looking at PTAB now, we've got the best PTAB data. What is PTAB? Oh, sorry. PTAB was a new venue set up by the USPTO where um, people, it's called the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, where you can uh, challenge patents after they've been granted. So um, people might want to stay a district court case and file a P and start a PTAB proceeding. And sometimes you get two bites of the apple. There's various strategies. Um, but ultimately, you may want to challenge a, um, a patent in, in front of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. So again, these are all the things that go into a modern patent case. And we provide actual data to help you make these decisions to complement your intuition um, and not rely on anecdata as much. I think it would probably be really helpful to them from the things you've said. One of the things that jumped out at me was the idea to, to look at a particular type of, of litigation or issues and compare and see how successful other folks have been. I have to ask this question. I realize it's a little silly. Does it also help firms figure out who they want to steal from other firms? Absolutely, actually. It wasn't a use case we initially thought of, and there's a lot of use cases we we didn't necessarily think of, but once you have the data, you know, we were in front of a, um, a senior partner at a firm, and he said, hey, pull up this attorney, and we were able to do that. I said, wow, at a click of a button, you can see everything this, this um, he or she's worked on, um, you know, what the results have been, what the book of business really looks like, not just in the last 10 years, but in the last, say, 10 months. Um, and, you know, um, and that's invaluable for them when they're looking at making a major, major investment in a, in a attorney or a group of attorneys to come over to their firm. So absolutely. Um, so moving forward to now, um, I think there were a lot of folks who were surprised that the winner ended up being LexisNexis. Were the decisions on who to go with, um, and I'm sure there's things you can't talk about, but of the things that you can what was it like to go through that experience and how did you evaluate the various people who were interested in buying the company? Well, for us, it ended up being a perfect fit. You know, what are we looking for? We're really looking for documents. So we want to take legal analytics, the same openness and transparency, the same use cases that we built around information on judges, on districts, on attorneys, um, that kind of openness and transparency. And we want to bring it to all of law. And to do that, that means spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on PACER documents. Uh, so the first criteria was someone who had those documents and can get those to us um, <clears throat> so that we can quickly expand. And I'm going to interrupt you for a second because some of our, some of our listeners may be new to the profession. What is a PACER? Oh, PACER is 
a government system, public access to court records, essentially. And so a document does not exist in federal court unless it's filed on PACER. It's good news in the sense that you can actually get everything. But the bad news is that if you want to really do analytics and comprehensive and look at all thousand cases in front of this judge as opposed to just four or five, you know, you have to obviously download all those cases. You have to check periodically, get all the updates. And on PACER, that all costs a lot of money. And so, you know, for us, we were able to buy PACER documents with the money that we earned through revenue as well as through our venture capital money for patent as well as for copyright and trademark. But to expand into other areas like federal areas like securities and antitrust and commercial and employment and bankruptcy and ultimately state areas as well, for us to do that, we need access to a lot more documents. So that was one of the criteria. And then with LexisNexis, they really got it in terms of a startup. So they've kept Lex Machina as an independent subsidiary. The entire team uh, is still here. They've really done a lot to protect it from large corporate bureaucracy, which is not always conducive, you know, to uh, well-aligned, you know, with, with uh, you know, folks who've been running a startup for a while. They've done a good job of saying, great, let's, let's we want to get you the resources uh, you need to be successful. On the other hand, we want to protect you and shelter you so we don't overwhelm you, you know, just the reality that comes up with a large company. And that's a really significant issue because a lot of times over the years I've been following the legal community, which is at least 17 years in my role when I was editor-in-chief of Law Technology News for ALM, and one of the things that people were very fearful of was being bought by one of the big four and then just evaporating. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, of ghosts flowing around there. So it's, it sounds like, it sounds like that's an issue that you guys have been working hard to address so that that would not happen in this situation. Is that an accurate assumption? Absolutely. Um, and there's good models. They had a, you know, we did our due diligence. So Law 360 was a company that they bought and have kept independent the last three years. And the company has, I think, revenues increased uh, I think fourfold over that period, but kept independent, even though it's actually in New York near uh, the Lexus headquarters, they've actually kept their own office, kept their own culture. And I spent you know a lot of time talking to those folks as well. And so they were able to get all the good things that they wanted but still keep their culture and keep their identity. So um, that meant a lot. You know, Mike Walsh himself considers himself a startup guy. He was a startup guy, of course. And so that's an important part of his identity. So he spent a lot of time uh, with us. And, and a lot of the time was basically how to, how to protect ourselves from, you know, from, <clears throat> from some of the larger corporate bureaucracy. So that meant a lot to us. He took a personal interest, uh, his personal background, and, and also the commitment to analytics. It was very clear. They'd done some good work with MedMail Navigator, other, other Lexus products, but they really saw Lex Machina as the foundation of an analytics strategy going forward. And that meant a lot to us as well. So they wanted um, the know-how, uh, not just the current revenue, but real commitment to invest, uh, invest in the people. And they're very, very excited to have us part of the company. So I want to focus a little bit on your your experience individually, how did it shape your career? And tell us a little bit, if you would, what you went through in your various positions and tell us how that went forward 
And what lessons did you learn going through through this? You were you were one of the folks in the very beginning. Am I correct on that? I was not part of the original public interest project. So I, I came on as CEO in, in mid-2011 to help grow it and turn it into a real business. And that was CEO, you said? Yeah, I came in as CEO in, in mid-2011, yeah. So um, and really helped turn it from a public interest project into a company, you know, raise the venture capital money, et cetera. But yeah, I'm happy to talk about my, my experience doing throughout the, the time running the company. Is that what you're interested in? Yeah. What what lessons did you learn? What's the time period? So you, you've been in there since 2011. And what surprises did you encounter? What do you look back and go, wow, you know, we did it this way and should we have done it that way? Or it's a good thing we didn't. I mean, what were your, what can, what can our listeners learn from your experience taking them to the next level? Great. Yeah. A lot of lessons learned uh, over the time. I'll try to think in not particular order, but obviously the importance of growing the team, you have to complement yourself. So adding Carl Harris to run product, who had also gone to Stanford Law, but also had a deep technical and product background was really important to us. Ultimately getting um, a, a great VP of sales, someone who could really embrace the startup culture, but could also, you know, had come from uh, a large place in Clinton, in this case, Thompson, to understand the mindset of the buyers, you know, a marketer who didn't come from a legal background, but was just an expert at running a modern data-driven marketing organization, um, which has been critical for lead generation. So really building out the team with complementary people and complementary skill sets was important. Getting investors who will ask the tough questions, not people who just kind of show up and say, okay, you're doing a great job. But, you know, whether it's advisors or investors who will be engaged and, again, ask those hard questions at the board meeting. I really felt like I was put through the ringer in the board meetings, but I came out better on the other side. I think that's really important early on. You can build that in, in a number of ways uh, into your company. Is there anything you would have done differently with hindsight? You know, I mean, the other part is just, you know, being able to, again, balance the, you know, look ahead, have a good plan. Um, you know, both from the revenue and expenses side. Again, I think we did a good job there. I mean, in terms of what, is there anything I would do differently? I don't know. I'm not going to take something up right now. Um, okay. I think, you know, timing's a, a, a lot too. You know, we, we, we happen to have good timing. One yeah. thing I'll share, share is a funny story. Uh, when you said the early days is, you know, we, we used to feel we couldn't even talk about data. Um, we would talk about history. You know, we're not selling data. We're, we're selling history. And, um, and as George Washington said, or I think, you know, th- those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it, right? So oh, yeah. um, so we, we were able to help be a leader in allowing law firms and lawyers to talk about data and talk about analytics. But we also sort of benefited from a good climate where there's a number of startups and people were, were in a new openness and, you know, and partners who are more comfortable with technology probably because of work that you and others have done. So I think that, um, you know, we benefited a lot from the timing, but I think we also, you know, drove the industry as well. We said, hey, we're going to create a category. We're really going to try to brand this legal analytics um, category and make it a must-have. That was the other important thing is that, you know, how does this really communicate to people why they need this now? That was a big challenge, and we were ultimately able to overcome that. But that was another important, important part of what we did. 
So I'm dying of curiosity. How did you come up with the name for Lex Machina? Or was it already there when you got there? Yeah, again, so I would credit uh, George Gregory and Josh Walker, who came up with the original name. And the name means law machine. So you can either go with the Greek or the Latin. So either law machine or word machine. But it was just really a fitting, particularly Josh was just kind of deeply uh, taken with this idea of technology and law, data and law, you know, computers and law. And so it ended up being a kind of fun name, not one that was always easy for folks to pronounce because they still mispronounce it all the time. Did I pronounce it right? Uh, you did. Excellent. Hey. <laughs> so we have time for one last question, and it's been fascinating listening to you. Thank you so much for, for speaking with us. Um, what advice would you give to newbie startups right now? I think a couple of things. Make sure you use the resources available in the community, establish an advisory board, staff it, you know, give, be willing to share equity. I think a problem a lot of young entrepreneurs make is they just want to, they don't trust people or they, you know, they want to kind of keep it, you know, they, they don't want to share equity. They're not willing to give it up. We had a lot of investors, a lot of advisors. Those helps us tremendous amount. So it could be particular expertise like marketing or sales, or it could be particular kind of credibility or branding that you're looking for that you can gain from an advisory board. Think hard about those use cases and value prop. It is not, this is not the easiest industry to sell into, especially to sell a new product. So you really have to think about those use cases and then find uh, your early champions and, you know, use and then grow from there uh, and make sure you give yourself enough runway knowing that it's gonna, it could take a while to get adoption. Make sure you give yourself enough runway uh, because once you acquire these companies, uh, sorry, these yeah, companies and law firms, they're going to stick with you for the long term, but it could take a little longer. So make sure you, um, you're able to ride the adoption curve. Well, Josh, you've just given us wonderful insight, and I love your recommendations, and I thank you very much. We've been talking with Josh Becker, CEO of Lex Machina. I'm Monica Bay. We look forward to the next edition of Law Technology Now. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.